Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I really think you're going to be happy you did. Jasmine's going to be interviewing two women who are truly changing the way we look at animal advocacy. Brooke Haggerty and Joe Anderson will be here to talk about Faunalytics, which is an organization that is really professionalizing the animal protection movement and helping people help animals by providing essential research and resources to be more effective and save more animal lives. I just love this idea that we're, we're getting serious. About this, you know? Yeah. We're not no, just saying, is- I mean, you would think that it would be enough to just say, but they're animals. Like, we shouldn't be mean to them, but it's not. Uh, right. we, need, we need facts. We need data. We, we need all that stuff. And there's a lot more to this interview, which really was so cool that I just kept going on and on. So it's a longer one. And so we need to keep this top of the show on the shorter side to get to this interview. So much great information. We talk a lot about not only the importance of inclusivity within the animal protection movement, but also how there's actually data to back that up now. So I think things might be starting to change in that realm. And the people I'm interviewing today are really two of the people who are spearheading the like science-based aspect to it. Brooke and Joe, and they're also joining me again on the bonus segment, and we'll be talking to them uh, about how they got started down this sort of like nerd route, which is a really cool story too. So if you're a member of the flock, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And of course, as a special thank you to our Flock community, during these COVID times, we're doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls. They're at 4 p.m. Eastern time. And sometimes it's just the Flock and sometimes we feature special guests. And we've just been having some great conversations. And really, I'm starting to feel really close to a lot of the people who who check in every week. So definitely consider... uh, doing that if you if you are a member of the flock and you can, you are available at that time uh you can check out the flock facebook group for updates and the link or write to us at info at our henhouse.org so yeah you you're yes. on the on the road again yes i can't believe you started singing that because i'm in an rv right now and all of the training videos that i had to watch were like these terribly produced videos that I had to like sign something saying I watched them, had that playing in the background. On the, the road again. Time. Yeah, the whole time. Though I did enjoy that today on the Billy Joel Playhouse in a row was Say Goodbye to Hollywood and then uh, I'm in a New York state of mind. It was like, okay, yep. Where were you listening that to that? Playlist and, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, Spotify. So, I see. So it was somewhat yeah. random. You didn't plan it that way. No, they well, just gave you album. New York songs. Well, first they say goodbye to Hollywood or West Hollywood in my case, yeah. and then yeah. New York State of Mind. So I am, yeah, I'm. I just want you to know if you're listening to this, and I don't sound as pristine as usual. Uh, the Wi-Fi is really not good at these RV parks, and so I'm. You're recording this for me. Usually, I'm recording my own side, and I'm using a headset instead of my microphone. So it feels a little awkward for me. I hope that it, the sound quality for you works. But anyway, I'm I'm currently in Fairplay, Colorado. I love that name. 
it's a really good name. And it was a very terrifying drive to get here. Like these windy roads in an RV with like the yeah. speed limit, uh, 10 miles per hour. And it made me think of when we went to Big Sur and it would say, it was, which was like the most beautiful and scariest drive of my life. And it would say, around the curve, slow down to 10 miles an hour. And you'd have to like speed up to get to the 10, <laughs> yeah, 10 miles an hour. <laughs> no, that sort of reminded me of this. I'm not sure it was and- 10 miles an hour. I think I was capable of going 10 miles an hour. But yeah, it would say more like slow down to 30 miles an hour. It's like, I would laugh at them. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, so this is similar to that, uh, but... It- yeah, well, mountains, we're not used to mountains. We're not mountain people, so... My, uh, yeah, they were so, so beautiful. You, you are moving to the Catskills. The Catskills are not quite the Rockies, though, so... No, no. We'll be okay. It, uh, and you know, you know that like when you go state by state, it's funny because it's almost like you're going through like a postcard scrapbook because every terrain really looks like this terrain that we identify with that state. It and is true. so like immediately. I know the minute you the pass boundary, across the border, it's different. It's right. crazy. So, yeah. So I, I thought that, you know, one of the most glorious drives in the country is Utah and those like giants, like moon, moon, I don't even know what you call them. They look like moon rocks. So I'm just going to call them moon rocks. <laughs> um, and, maybe. Yeah. And, and then, and then you get into Colorado and the terrain changes and, and it's like, you know, then it becomes lush and green and uh, it's, it's quite beautiful. And because of the global pandemic, this trip is all happening in an RV with... Uh, yeah, could you stop calling it an RV and start calling it an RVgan? Because R-vegan, I've wanted yeah. to do that my whole life. I know. it's Yes, the RVgan. Uh, so it's like, you know, there's two humans, three dogs, and a cat in this RVgan. And uh, they're very small actually, dogs, though. They're very really, small dogs. Yes, they're all elderly chihuahuas. They don't take up a lot of space, but they're all like buckled into their dog seats in the bench that, you know, all has seat belts. So there's three dog seats. Actually, one one of the dogs barked her head off. I think she's actually about to bark right now. So you'll hear it in real time. Good, good, good on you because just most multiply it by 800 zillion and that's my life right now. But anyway, she barked so many times that we moved her bed to in between. Oh, it, she just stomped on my flower. Oh, Lucy, that was my flower. Um, <laughs> she also ate a half a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before. Um, but th- we did move her to like between the seed and she was a lot better. But anyway, oh. so like... So this is what yeah. you would, know, would, would call a smart dog. I know, she is. And she, just, she runs like, the roost. Yes, 100%. I was a little concerned or a lot concerned about Stella. I mean, we even talked about it on the show, my cat. Stella is a kid, yes. Yeah. And she's like, uh, I mean, I even was like, I know what I'll do. I'll follow, you know, millennial that I am. I'm not a millennial, but I'll just say that so that I can pretend I am. That uh, I, I thought, millennial that I am, I will follow hashtag cats in RVs. And I was like, surely I will find some advice there. And there was like three posts in the history of Instagram for hashtag cats and RVs. So I was even more worried because who would bring their cat in an RV? But she's like, I'm good. I'm good. We could live in this. That's cool. Mm, she's a smart kitty. Yeah. So she's in the cool so 
at night just still be has... very careful that she doesn't get out that's the yes, terrifying thing i know i know so i will say because i'm getting a lot of questions on instagram about this so i'm just gonna say it but uh just so you know the setup so i told you that during the trip the dogs are in the dog bed and when we're parked stella can run around do whatever she wants in fact she has her own loft area because above the driver's and the passenger seat is an extra double bed and so we put like the, the litter box and the cat food up there and some and her cat toys and some and she and and we brought the cat tree with us which is a giant cat tree so it's like basically the whole army so she can climb up the cat tree and go up to the loft area herself but when we're driving we have like this oversized cat playpen i don't think it's actually a cat playpen but now it's a cat playpen that has like a uh, you could zip it on the top too and and it pops up like a tent and our friends alicia and danielle gave it to us and stella hangs out in there we put a bed the litter box the food it's pretty big you can't get around it so that's how we're dealing with well i hope everybody's appreciating this level of detail i certainly am or is that sarcastic or real (laughs) you're kidding that was sarcastic you are getting level of detail the whole trip. I'm texting you and our. I know. I, I already, I've already heard all of this twelve times. But I appreciate I'm sure everybody your, else is enjoying it. But we do have we, we do have a very long interview, so I think we. Wait, need I to, just want to say one more thing. Just one more thing, and then we can get the interview. No, we still but have to I, support vegan businesses. Uh, yes. Well, okay. Okay. Let me say one more thing. So I am hoping, and I'm going to report back on this next week, but tomorrow we like go through the rest of Colorado and, and, and then to Kansas. But I'm hoping that when we go through, through Denver, I can stop at Nooch, the vegan grocery store, because they are doing like social distance, like pantry style purchasing of their vegan food. And I need to load up on more Upton's vegan mac and cheese, which is instant in the microwave and 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 candy bars as well so you're like, not going to tell us the names of the specific candy bars you're going to buy the, uh, that was sarcastic that was that was sarcastic you can tell oh, us I all think. about them after you've bought them and uh, uh, well i've already been eating no i've been eating that but i'm almost out then that's why i need more the other day we had loma linda canned vegan hot dog yeah i must admit i've never i've never gone there i've never gone yeah. to the to the canned loma linda meat well, that's because that was emergency COVID food at the beginning of COVID. And now I'm eating my way through it on this trip because we have to have like all 10 days of our food and coffee and drink in the RV because of aforementioned global pandemic. Well, so, they, 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 well we won't argue about that. It does seem like you could have found someplace that you could have bought stuff. With, I, I don't curbs, know. Curbside service or whatever. There's but you not can't a be lot. Sure, you can't be sure of that. So... So yes, I'm glad you're being careful. I'm glad Stella the cat is uh, basically running everything because she's better at that than the rest of you. And I'm glad that Lucy the dog found her way into the front seat that she, as she wanted. And now I'm glad to be supporting vegan businesses because we do need to get to this terrific interview. But I first, I really want to talk about, you know, some of these businesses that need some extra support and we're shouting them out. And some we do know, some we're just uh, hearing about. So if you want an announcement, go to um, ourhenhouse.org slash vegan businesses, and there's a form there. And with that in mind, this is a submission from Flock member Bonnie Brown, and it's for something called passionplacement.com. And this sounds very, very cool. I think a lot of you are wanting to hear, hear about this. It's a niche job board 
and it's mission focused on animal advocacy, veganism, and the environment. And uh, if you are looking for a job or if you know somebody who is, uh, you can search jobs with uh, member companies. And these are companies that put passion and values first. And this will allow folks who are looking to find opportunities where they can make a difference, live their purpose. Well, that sounds like what we all need to be doing right now. As life is so crazy right now, what better moment is there than to start living your purpose? There's no time to lose. They also provide coaching and resume services. uh, So so that can help you out in getting that perfect job. So I thought that was... um, pretty cool to find out. For the employees, employers can post uh, any kind of job, full-time, part-time, freelance, blah, blah, blah. And there can be some screening services and they want to build a tribe. They want to connect companies and individuals who all want to stop the exploitation of animals and and make the planet better and, and give us all better food. So mm. do that if you're looking for a job. And if you're not looking for a job, maybe you should be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. That sounds cool. Uh, and our next submission is from another listener, Abby Hubbard. But before I give you that, Marianne, I just want to say, are you excited to see me? <laughs> yeah, but you're not here yet. We'll talk about that when you get here. Okay. Well, can I also say that there's like fires and so we have to like reroute around the fires. Isn't that horrible? You're not letting yeah, me no, get into any... Okay. That is deeply horrifying. And yeah, yeah, and there's no, no joke at all. I like it's around me right now. I don't think I even knew about the Colorado fires because the California fires are so they're huge. horrible. Yeah, like and I we had to like to think that we did, obviously we were coming from LA and there are California fires there, but there weren't like on route. But now these are. It's very apocalyptic. Yeah. Like very, and the uh, highway we were on before right, had. Let, um, let's not get everybody upset though. It had burnt, burnt highway side. Like the side was okay. I'm gonna just go on. So this it's, is a submission from Abby Hubbard. Thank you for listening to the show, Abby, and also to Bonnie, who you just mentioned. Thank you for being a flock member, Bonnie. We really appreciate you. This is Dota's Kitchen, which makes the very best soul food and desserts. And Abby actually said she can't get enough. Her favorite is the mac and cheese, which she says she shares with her dogs and turkeys because everyone should get to enjoy this kind of deliciousness. Um, Abby, you share with your dogs and your turkeys, but not with your favorite co-hosts of your oh, favorite podcast. Sake. Stop trying to get okay. people to send you food. Dota's Kitchen. It's I'm going to spell it. It's D-O-D-A-H-S kitchen.com. It makes vegan soul food and desserts inspired by Afro-vegan traditions. The mission is to make veganism accessible and delicious. You can experience Dota's Kitchen by eating at their upcoming retail cafes in Mount Rainer, Maryland, and Baltimore by making a personalized catering order or by visiting any of the 80 plus natural markets and juice bars across six states, including Maryland, DC, Virginia, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York, which carry their mac and cheese, lasagna, cakes, cupcakes, and cheesecakes. Oh my God. Yeah. I want that. I want that now. I say that every single week. But you actually legitimately mean it every week. I legitimately do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get to this interview because I'm super excited about it. Brooke Haggerty is the executive director at Faunalytics, and her previous experience includes working on the legislative campaign Yes on Prop 12 in California, serving as the executive director for the Foundation for Animal Care and Education, and working as a humane educator for the Animal Protection and Rescue League. Joe Anderson is the research director at Faunalytics. 
as well as the co-leader of the RECAP Researcher Collective. That RECAP stands for Research to End Consumption of Animal Products. Yes, let's do that. And she's also an adjunct research professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. They'll be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our headhouse, Brooke and Joe. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to chat with you. And I, I'm a big fan of phonolytics, as, as I think you know, but now you extra know. And <laughs> I, I know that a lot of our listeners know what phonolytics is, but it's possible that some listeners might be unfamiliar. So would you be able to give us the quick version of what phonolytics is and, and, and why it was founded? And then we can get into some detail about the work you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. So Phonolytics is a nonprofit organization based in the United States, and our purpose is to empower the animal advocacy community. And we do that with research and data. So our purpose is to both conduct original research studies, and we also host a research library of research studies to help animal advocates be as effective as possible. So we want to maximize their effectiveness both in their campaigns, their strategies, their messages, but research can also be used to measure impact. So our whole purpose is to strengthen the movement. I love that. Anything we can do to strengthen the movement is, <laughs> I'm a big fan of, and, and I think you do it like nobody else. No other organization exists like this. And one of the things that I'm totally excited about is your study on advocate retention. I've heard of people studying vegan retention, but I haven't heard anyone looking at advocate retention. <laughs> but this is yes. obviously hugely important. And I've certainly seen, as I'm sure you have, a lot of people come and go and and over the years that I've been involved in animal advocacy. So tell us a bit about what you've found about why some advocates leave organizations or lapse from the animal protection movement. Absolutely. So I'll take this one. It's like you said, we, we looked at this because it's just such an important thing. And I think this is, to my knowledge, the first big study of advocate retention. So First, I'll just say we included advocates from all different cause areas. So the majority of them advocate for farmed animals, but there are other types of advocacy in there as well. And what we found is that some of the most common reasons that people reported having left previous organizations uh, were problems with leadership among the, the highest, and then also not wanting to do a particular type of advocacy anymore, like a lack of fit. And, and possibly related to that, finding better opportunities elsewhere. We also found some important things about burnout, uh, probably not coming as any surprise to you, and discrimination and harassment for some people. Yeah, can we talk about the burnout for a second? Because that's been on that's been something that I have seen a lot of people go through. And it's mm -hmm. funny because when we who haven't gone through it 
to call it something. We tend to call it burnout. And yet the activists who I know who've gone through it, like I'm the one attributing that name to it. They're not. They're not like, oh, I'm burning out. I just got to get out of here. So they might just sort of shift things around in their life and then step away from their advocacy. So can you explain, even if it's just anecdotally, like what you think burnout is and how you've seen it manifest? Absolutely. Yeah. So we say burnout a lot, like you said, and we mean a lot of different things when we're talking about it. So that might be why you're seeing people who aren't necessarily using that word themselves. In this study and in in academia in general, you will see sort of two related constructs. And one of them is called burnout and the other one is called compassion fatigue or even secondary traumatic stress. So there's kind of two different things going on there. Burnout in that sense is usually about workload and demands of the job and the fact that being an animal advocate can be a full-time plus job for people, whether they're being paid for it or not, that there's always more we can do. And many of us feel like we should be always doing more. And so it's really easy to get overloaded just with that, with all the things you could be doing and can't do constantly every minute of every day. And then the second part, compassion fatigue or secondary traumatic stress is almost like PTSD, that many of us are working directly with animals who are suffering, who are being slaughtered, or we're not working directly with them, but we're constantly exposed to imagery of that or content about that one way or another. And that is incredibly draining for anyone to deal with. So we're in it with the best of intentions and trying to do as much as we can but there's always more you can do and you're always seeing the heartbreak and suffering that's happening for animals all over the world. Uh, yeah, really well said and so true. It's, it's very traumatizing and it's good to put sort of some research behind this because it also helps validate it a little bit, you know. It, I just mm-hmm. had the oddest memory. This is literally the weirdest thing anyone's going to ever tell you on an interview. <laughs> but I remember watching The Golden Girls. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, Dorothy was very tired all the time. And one day she was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and she felt such relief knowing that there was a name for it. Anyway, <laughs> no, for exactly. some reason, mm-hmm. yeah, it's validating. Exactly. It is. It really is validating to hear that there is a name for this and that it, you're not alone in it, that mm-hmm. this is a common issue as much as that sounds like it might be worse it's actually better Mm -hmm. on an individual level to feel like there's other people who are like you who are experiencing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the findings was that a lot of people have problems with leadership. I'm just wondering if there are patterns in that type of finding. Like, for example, is there a such thing as more effective leadership that might help to sustain an advocate in their organization or like, would it be possible that somebody who's in a, well, obviously, if someone's in a more toxic work environment, they're going to be leaving it more quickly. Have you done any research into how to create a more effective work environment in animal advocacy? Gotcha. So, yeah, there's a few different ways that good leadership manifests and bad leadership manifests. And one of the the key issues is fairness and transparency and just sort of coupled with that communication, that you really need strong communication and a sense that your leaders are making decisions for the benefit of everyone and conveying that to everyone. So we haven't looked into specifics of animal advocacy leadership yet. This was 
an initial study to get a sense of how different issues compare to one another. But absolutely, I think more work is needed to look at leadership in particular and some of the other issues in more depth. And I know that just to give a shout out to another group for a moment, the new group Animal Advocacy Careers is doing some work in this particular area that I think we'll be supporting them with. And I think that's very needed to better specify how leadership can improve. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that place. <laughs> we yeah, should, I want to talk to them. That's so cool. It's quite new. Well, we've heard a lot about Me Too issues in the movement and that mainstream advocacy organizations are not successful in attracting BIPOC applicants. And Brooke, we actually first met, I think, at the Encompass Institute, which was specifically about supporting DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion in our animal advocacy. What did you find about support for diversity, equity, and inclusion? I learned so much from that DEI Institute by Encompass. I'm really grateful for the conversations we had. And I learned not only about, you know, racism and inequity in our country, um, but also in the nonprofit sector and specifically in animal advocacy in, in all forms. And I think what's important to know that people are waking up to is that we are so ingrained in a culture that caters to privileged white folks. And as a movement, we haven't necessarily done a great job at making this environment equitable and welcoming. And I should say mainstream movement, right? Because there are other movements going on and BIPOC advocates that are doing an amazing job in in their own advocacy. So something I really think that we have an opportunity to focus on is learning about how each of our organizations can play a role in making our movement the diverse and equitable space that we know we have the potential to be with work. And so there's a lot of opportunities to edit and revise content, whether that's advocacy materials or communications or what you're putting out there, examining things through more of a diverse lens so that we have a better sense of what we're uh, communicating to the public as well as BIPOC advocates. Well, and also one another thing that came out of that institute, which I also got a lot from and, and plan on attending again in the fall, is that you worked on an essay that I was honored to edit yes. for Encompass Essays, which is basically a collection of essays written by members of the cohort that attended that inaugural event at the Encompass Institute. And by the time this airs, that will be already published. So it's called DEI and Data, Using Research to Create an Inclusive Animal Rights Movement. And what I loved about it was that you really dug deep, not only personally, but also in terms of your work and your advocacy within organizations. And you laid out the hard work of like, what it takes to confront our own racism and and how we can turn it around, especially as white advocates working in animal advocacy. And so if anyone's listening to this and they're intrigued by what Brooke is saying here, I I strongly encourage you to go to Sentient Media's website and click on Encompass Essays and, and check it out because, Brooke, you lay out a list of exactly what people can do. And you just kind of started to touch on it. But I would love to know a little bit more about what it was like, the process of writing that out, and if you learned anything in in that journey. Yes, thank you. And I really appreciated working on it with you, knowing I had someone who could 
not only uh, proof it, but check me and, and encourage me to go further. That's what I really needed was that push to dive deep because that's where the work begins. And when we notice that discomfort with what we're learning, that means that's that's we're, we're doing the work, right? This isn't necessarily going to be comfortable, but it's important. So the challenge I think was pushing myself more and more and more. I started off from a very academic approach, you know, what does the data say? And just focusing on that. And Jasmine had to come in and say, where is Brooke in this essay? Uh, (laughs) I need to see more of you here. And that was when I think my essay really transformed to be more meaningful for me, certainly, to really understand the role that privilege played in my own life and my own Mm -hmm. career as an animal advocate Mm -hmm. and how white animal advocates might be contributing to this problem, this lack of diversity and this lack of a welcoming environment for a lot of advocates of the global majority. And so it was really great to not only analyze where I was, but to really think about racial inequity in animal protection, whether that's implicit bias and white favoritism, or the fact that so many people don't have access to affordable vegan options, and a lot of advocacy groups might be pushing those unaffordable options, or advocacy that excludes the mistreatment of marginalized groups, um, such as workers in slaughterhouses, for example. So I really tried to hone in on some areas where we could all step back and think a little bit about unintentional damage we might have been doing. And then when I outlined opportunities for improvement, that was for me just as much as it is for the readers, right? Just going through and saying, okay, we can do this, 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 and this. And I did learn a lot of those things from the incredible women at Encompass. So Mm -hmm. it was really rewarding to write the essay. And I hope it's beneficial for animal advocates everywhere. Yeah, it it was beneficial for me to be next to you on your journey as you were discovering this. And it's interesting because I'm not done editing all of the pieces yet for this collection, but every, I would say 99% of the people who were writing had that exact same beginning of like writing it from a sort of academic place first. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder like where we are in our story as animal advocates, because we, you know, we want to bring professionalism to the work we do. We want to grow from like that kind of 1970s or 1980s aesthetic of what it meant to be an animal advocate. We don't want to be perceived as like a scrappy group. We want to be really stepping up. But in the process, is it possible that we're losing our story? I think... I think we're getting stuck on one story. I think there might be an idea of this this move toward professionalism, which in many ways is a very good thing. Um, but what are other opportunities to do animal advocacy? And it doesn't necessarily mean there's one right way, I think. You know, at Faunalytics, we do research to identify the most effective ways. But I do strongly think that a multi-pronged approach to advocacy is important. And while... While we focus on professionalism, I do think there's a partial risk of ostracizing other advocates. Not to say that other ways of advocacy aren't professional, but I think there is a bias toward a certain way. And I think we should be open to different forms of advocacy. That was so well said, because when I was asking the question, I realized I was sort of asking the impossible, and yet you managed (laughs) to take my, my sort of, you know 
non-question and turn it into a really <laughs> eloquent answer. So, so thank you. Yeah, so true. Absolutely so true. And I strongly encourage people to write because like you just described so eloquently yes. that I, I, I feel like that too. I, I've learned so much about myself from by, like by putting it on paper. And and I know that a lot of people really encourage just sort of journaling and writing for ourselves. And I understand why. But for me, it is partly about the fact that like there is going to be another person looking at this. And that's, mm-hmm. to me, accountability. So I strong, I'm a strong proponent of personal narrative as an inroad to social change. And I hope more animal advocates can jump onto that bandwagon too. <laughs> I agree. So. And part of the essay too was acknowledging where I've gone wrong. And even if that's something that an advocate might not be able to publish it on a major platform, that could be beneficial. Writing out areas, you know, not not dwelling on mistakes, but acknowledging these are ways that I might have unintentionally done a disservice to advocates who aren't white. And once you put that out there, like you said, you hold yourself accountable and it gives you a really strong sense of, okay, I can do better and I need to do better. And just getting that mindset is is half the battle. And once you are comfortable with that discomfort, it becomes a lot easier to talk about race and inequity and saying, this is what we need to do. And we're not going to stop until our movement improves. Yes. Damn right. I love it. Okay, so too much work and not enough pay are pretty standard issues in any job, but are they more severe in animal advocacy and and what can be done about it? It's hard to say because we don't have exactly comparable data with different organizations, but it seems likely that they're worse than, say, the corporate sphere. I suspect that compared to other nonprofit organizations, those issues are prevalent across the board. There's always more that can be done to help, and there's always a lack of funding and grants. So I think that those are things where we can actually turn to other nonprofit spaces to see lessons learned and how Mm -hmm. to tackle some of those things, including trying to get more all-around funding from funders to support operational costs and the real costs of the things that we do. A lot of what we do happens behind the scenes, and it's not directly Mm. the research that I'm doing or the outreach that someone on the ground is doing or sitting down for this podcast with us. It's things that are happening off screen, and there's a lack of support for those things a lot of the time. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's one approach I would suggest. That is a really good point. You know, I've noticed on the fundraising side of what I do at our hen house that it is hard to get overhead costs uh, Mm -hmm. covered by donors because frequently donors, especially higher donors, are looking to fund a program. And, you know, or in the early days of our hen house, I would be like, oh, great. Yeah, let's start that program. (laughs) Then (laughs) I'd realize that we're even more spread thin than we were before when I I can't even believe when I look back at my early days as an animal activist, like as a career, what I was paid. I mean, what I was working Mm -hmm. for. And I was only able to do it because of, you know, maybe my partner at the time made a lot more money than I did. And so there was like this locked in privilege. And, and I see now in my forties that like younger people, they rotate out of the movement because it just becomes an untenable situation for them. So I have noticed a shift within, within nonprofits that more and more people are recognizing the importance of funding overhead. And I hope that 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 shift continues. I hope so too. I think it will 
do the nonprofit sector a huge benefit to really understand that operational expenses are part of a successful organization, that programs don't happen without the people behind them, and that these people have every right to earn a livable wage as someone who works for a corporation. And it would be just a dream come true, I think, if organizations didn't have to spend as much time trying to convince funders that operational expenses were necessary, if they would trust that we need to spend time um, doing the work that goes into programs, doing the work to disseminate our programs. For example, if Faunalytics just did research, but didn't spend time on communications and relationship building with advocates who would use our research, right? right. So it's, it's really important, I think, to see the whole picture. And I hope that more and more funders will start including operational support in their grant making. Yes. And also everything takes so much work. I mean, not to go down this road too much, but like if you are presenting a report, there was a design element that went into it. There was like a copy editing element that went into it. There was a tech element that went into it. It's not just like what lands in our inbox, but it's all of the people involved in making it happen. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So true. Okay. Well, now that we got that off our chest, um, (laughs) what's your best piece of advice for anyone running an advocacy organization? Oh, what a great question. Well, I would say uh, this might be an obvious answer for Faunalytics, but uh, you know, do the research. What what does the research say? Whatever type of animal advocacy organization you're running, is there research out there that will inform? the most effective ways you can move forward. And maybe you have a lot of ideas on how to move forward, but as a capacity building organization, we wanna make sure that animal advocates can do the most work they can do, the best work they can do, and we have the data to bolster that. So I would say if you are putting together you know, leafleting materials or something, there is research that talks about what wording has been most effective. Um, we, you know, we did a study on that earlier this year. So that would be, I think, off the top of my head, a, a number one piece of advice. What do you think, Joe? I completely agree. Obviously, we work for a research organization, but that's not to say that you need to get bogged down in looking at every single thing that's ever been published. It's not mm-hmm. going to hold up your advocacy to take a few hours to look into things or to come to Faunalytics office hour. Shameless plug. Um, (laughs) You know, you can look into what exists and if there isn't something that is perfectly matched to what you're thinking of doing in your program, there probably isn't something that's a perfect match. That doesn't mean that you have no information to go on. There is always something there that will hint in the right direction and rather than just assuming that you can figure out the best approach, you can look at what exists and take what you can find and move forward with that. I read a great piece recently talking about the opposite issue of toxic intellectualism and getting too bogged down in the specifics and spending all of this time on research. So I think people worry a little bit about that sometimes that we're advocates, we need to advocate. And looking to the research does not mean getting bogged down in it and staying at that phase forever. It means spending a little bit of time for a lot of gain so that you don't Mm -hmm. go herring off in the wrong direction. Yeah, totally. I I so agree with that. I mean, it's the same thing with DEI work, isn't it? I've seen criticism of animal advocates, like, why are you spending your time prioritizing DEI work when there's animals dying? And it's like, I don't think you can separate those two things. I think it's 
I think you can't really show up as an effective animal advocate without centering anti-racism in your work. It doesn't take away from the animal rights movement to prioritize that. Does anyone have anything to say about that? I agree. It'll only strengthen our work, whether it's, you know, what we were talking about, using research to inform your work. Don't let it bog you down, but, but use it and let it be the, you know, the trampoline that lets you soar. Same with DEI. The more people we can reach to talk about veganism and animal protection, the more impact we'll have. And and we can't achieve that if we're ignoring a huge, you know, percentage of the population. Exactly. Just to build on that slightly, I feel like people are very impatient at times that we want to make the change now and we want results now. And of course we do. That's that would be great if we could achieve it. But the animal advocacy movement began decades ago and will continue. Things don't happen overnight. You know, it's it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So taking the time that we need to make sure that everyone can participate in that marathon is incredibly important. Yeah, I love that way of putting it. And I, so I asked you your best piece of advice for anyone running an advocacy organization, but what about from the point of view of someone who wants to work in the movement? What are some red flags that they should look out for before quitting their current job? Hmm. If I were not at all involved in the movement, knowing what I do know, I would say that definitely look into the different areas of not only animal advocacy, but the different types of organizations out there. There are a lot of different paths that one can take in animal protection. And I did not know how many there were when I first started. It was it was very exciting, for example, to, to hear about, you know, when I first got going, you know, your first protest or whatever it is that you get involved in. But there are so many forms of advocacy out there, so many different organizations. And if someone has the luxury of taking time to really think about what step they want to go, I would encourage them to check out the variety of groups that exist out there and really get a sense of what you're most passionate about. Because that was one of the findings from our advocate retention study is the difference people feel they're making is extremely important to advocates. It actually ranked a little stronger than satisfaction with pay and benefits. They really want to feel that they're making a difference. So I think to have a successful career in animal advocacy, trying to find that perfect match, or at least, you know, a match when it comes to value alignment is extremely important. Exactly. And just in the spirit of of using that narrative approach you were talking about, Jasmine, that has been so true for me personally, that when I started out in advocacy, I came in as a researcher from academia, rather than as someone who came up through the ranks of direct confrontation with the public, interacting with the public, because that style of advocacy I have so much respect for and so much fear of. That is just such a non-fit for me. I have some mental health issues, anxiety that make it very difficult for me to imagine putting myself in that kind of situation. And I never imagined that I would be able to be an animal advocate because of that. But having the chance to see what Phonolytics was doing and that kind of work, that way of helping, um, it was just so important to find a good fit for my personality and the work that I love doing and can actually help. So I think that's what I would recommend people. Just look around. There's always something you can do to help, even if it's not the first thing that comes to mind. So you've you've talked about some of the specifics on how research is helping 
advocates and, and the importance of research and data to advocacy. What are some of the services that Faunalytics provides for animal advocates who want to use research more effectively? So we offer a few different programs and Joe and her incredible research team lead our primary program of original research. So we conduct our own studies that go through a prioritization process because we want our own work to be as impactful as possible. And so we really give a lot of thought with a lot of feedback as to which studies can really help animal advocates inform their advocacy, apply to their advocacy, um, and use immediately. So we do original research studies. We also host a research library of external studies. Our content director, Carl, curates an incredible library. Right now we have over 4,000 articles uh, that summarize academic studies related to all aspects of animal protection, whether that's farmed animals or wildlife or companion animals. There's really something in there for everybody. And we summarize these studies in a useful, applicable way so that advocates don't have to weed through all of the academic jargon looking for what's helpful to advocacy. And then we also offer uh, services through our office hours. So we have weekly office hours where advocates and organizations can reach out to us and just pick our brains, whether it's about research or is there data on a particular topic, or if you're thinking about trying to measure your own impact, really any question under the animal protection umbrella, come to our office hours and and get one-on-one support. So those are our three primary programs. And we also have all sorts of cool other resources. We have a Faunalytics Fundamentals series that are visually engaging infographics that cover big topics in animal protection. So all sorts of resources. If you're not as into reading, we have the visuals and we have videos and things like that. So many things. It's so cool. I love that. And I know that another topic that you've been studying that seems very timely is the public's awareness of the animal link to COVID-19 and and whether that extends to just thinking that, you know, <laughs> the Chinese should do something about wildlife markets, which is really horrifying, very upsetting, terribly <laughs> racist. Is there any kind of broader awareness of the harms of animal exploitation as it relates to COVID-19? And where does that brand of racism come in? Uh, Short answer, no, there's not much understanding of that link at this point. Frankly, there was minimal understanding of the link between the specifics of COVID-19 and wet market conditions even. People are aware that it came from China, only about half even mentioned animals when they didn't have any other sort of clues as to what we were asking about. We just asked, you know, where do you think COVID-19 originated, where it came from? And very few people know the origins. So trying to convince them further of the fact that factory farming, industrial agriculture can produce exactly the same result is another step and another difficulty. And So I strongly encourage advocates to talk about the links between intensive farming and disease, but it needs to be done carefully with an understanding that the public doesn't necessarily understand the link already, even just in the current situation, and that they may be reactive to that kind of message. Defensiveness is a real issue. Um, So keeping it very factual about the fact that there have been many previous outbreaks of different diseases that are linked directly to animal farming, that's a great approach. 
Yeah, totally. There's so many aspects of phonolytics that so many advocates could be informed by. Can you walk us through a scenario where like an activist such as myself is looking for research on a particular topic and and realizes it doesn't yet exist? What what would I do at that point if I wanted to reach out to phonolytics? Oh, sure. So once you've looked at our library and say you've done a search in our library and can't find anything, you can always email us. If you don't want to come to office hours, if you'd rather shoot off an email, you can email us. But that's where I'd recommend you go to the research advice section of our website. And there's a drop down that says, ask us. And that takes you to our office hours where you can either talk to one of our researchers, Joe or Tom, or you can talk to our content director, Carl. And if you email, you'll probably talk to our communications and development manager, Casey. And so our team of five um, is here to help. So that is when one of us would scour our own knowledge banks to try to make sure that that research indeed doesn't exist, or if there's research Mm -hmm. that's similar that might be helpful. And if not, that's when on the internal side at Phonolytics, we would factor that question in or filter that question in through our list of possible subjects for us to tackle in our original studies. We have dozens, if not hundreds, Joe, of uh, potential research topics that we want to explore through our original studies. And all year, we are kind of collecting ideas through our interactions with people. Um, We are soon going to have an option on our website to suggest a research question. And Joe and her team will then use those questions to think about what research we want to do here at Phonolytics. Great. Well, I would say that in addition to that coming up for a lot of our listeners, because I know a lot of people are very thoughtful who listen to our handouts and probably want more information about a variety of things. And hopefully that type of research already exists. And if not, it's nice to know that there are ways to possibly create it. I would say beyond that, that if there is one issue that obsesses the listeners of this podcast more than any other, it's how to effectively influence people to go vegan or at least get closer to it. What have you found about effective messaging regarding meat? All right. Yeah, it's such a tricky issue. And I think what I would say is think about the how of going vegan. If you can try to get away from the why at least with most people. What we're finding now is that many people, and I, I will say this is you know, more emphasis on the liberal end of the spectrum, the privileged end of the spectrum as well. Many people are already aware of the reasons for eating more plant-based food, whether that's completely vegan, vegetarian, reducing. So you can touch on those reasons, but I think that what advocates sometimes feel is that we need to find the absolute most convincing argument for why you need to be vegan. And I don't think that's effective in some cases because that's not the barrier that people have. They understand the rationale, but they're very defensive because there are so many reasons for them that they want to continue eating meat or animal products. And so what I would say is try to skip past that a little bit to avoid putting those those defensive guards up for people and really focus on the how you can go vegan. So talking about the awesome products that are available now, you know, if you haven't had the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger yet, like, you know, let's just go for a a fun outing and get a burger together. Make it a positive experience as much as you can and use that opportunity to talk in a understanding, validating way about how people can make changes at their own pace and meet them where they are. 
Yeah, I love that. Did you have anything to add, Brooke? No, I think that's very well said, Joe. And I think it's true. It's it's easy, you know, coming from an activist background myself, it's definitely my gut reaction to just if I could just get them to understand, you know, you know, why don't people get it? But I think it's really wise to say, okay, let's step past that and show them how, but also you know, when it comes to personal relationships, do lead by example. Even if they're not willing to go to that place with you, just continue to show that veganism is is easy. At least it is for you. You know, it is for me. I can't speak for everybody. I, again, I'm in a privileged uh, situation where I have access to healthy vegan foods. But it is something where demonstrating that over and over again and, and pushing past that defensiveness, I do think will help. I know it is a little bit of a divisive topic, but we also did find in our a study we did earlier this year that asking people to reduce instead of go veg um, actually got more people to buy meatless meals compared to pushing a vegan message. So again, knowing that that is a tricky topic among advocates, that is something that we found. So being willing to support incremental steps might be beneficial as well. Yeah, I was going to ask if you've tracked changes in people's willingness to purchase veg food or vegan food, like what kind of findings you've had. Yeah, so that study that Brooke's referring to, we had very similar videos that we presented to people that gave an environmental, animal welfare, and health argument for eating less meat or going vegetarian. And what we found was that the reduction message was more effective. People were more likely to order vegetarian meals afterward. And the reason was that they were just so much more willing to consider it. What we always think, I think, is that veganism is so much better for the animals that the impact will be that much more, even if it's fewer people. But it was literally four times as many people who were willing to sign a pledge to say that they would reduce than that they would try going vegetarian. And so that's where the real difference is coming out, that they're just not even willing to entertain the idea a lot of the time if you're asking that bigger ask. So if you start smaller, and I know it is difficult, but you don't need to think of it as the end goal necessarily. You're asking for reduction for now. And once they've got that under their belt, gotten used to the idea, found some new recipes, you can continue helping them along that path toward veganism. But it's not an overnight change for everyone. And just getting them across that first bridge to willingness to try Mm -hmm. is so important. Yeah. And I don't know how long you've both been vegan. Actually, let me just ask, how long have you both been vegan? Oh, gosh, I have to think about it. Um, (laughs) I've been vegan, I think, about four years and vegetarian uh, around nine or 10 years before that. Mm-hmm. How I wish I had just gone vegan. Um, you know, it's <laughs> well, looking back it, in hindsight, that's one of the uh, regrets is not going vegan sooner. But um, right. Yeah, that's that's my timeline. Yeah, mine's been um, about a year of almost I'm never going to say perfect veganism, close mm-hmm. to perfect veganism for the last year or so. There was a year of very messy veganism before that mm-hmm. and about what is it? Oh, geez. Like 13 or 14 years of vegetarian before that. Well, I ask because 
Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about what you're just talking about regarding the messaging of being a, a reduced vegetarian or, or consuming fewer animal products. I like the way you positioned it as doing so on our way to full veganism because mm-hmm. I've been vegan for 17 years and yeah, vegetarian for a really long time before that. I just don't know really what I was thinking when I was a vegetarian <laughs> because like all I ate was cheese and eggs. But I think I um, I think that I just sort of thought meat was icky and I was very young. At the, I was in college at the time. And anyway, the reason I say that is because in, in my day, we used to just sort of encourage people to go vegetarian first. And that to me is a much different message than go vegan as much as you can, uh, you know, for now on your way to full veganism. Like when I was vegetarian, I definitely exploited many more animals than probably when I ate animal, when I ate flesh. Mm -hmm. And so it is a good distinction to say, eat fewer of them for now. And then, and then you kind of know that by the time they realize that there's a creamer to replace their, their oppressive creamer, or there's, <laughs> you know, or there's like amazing vegan cheese products, or there's an alternative to every single thing that they eat. By the time they realize that they'll, they're much more likely to make the switch to veganism as opposed to going vegetarian first necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and I should give credit where credit is due. This is, almost a phrase exactly from Melody Joy's work, be as vegan as possible. And I just love that way of putting it. Meet people where they are, help them be as vegan as they can be as individuals. And it lets you get around some of those arguments like, oh, but I just love bacon so much. It's like, great, then be vegan for now. Who eats bacon? Just that one thing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like that can be a really hard thing to get your head around or to accept. But that person is going to make a much more of an impact if they are a vegan who otherwise, an otherwise vegan who eats bacon um, Mm -hmm. than they are if they ignore you completely and keep going as they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or like, oh, I could never go vegan because my mother makes the best ham on Christmas or something. Well, okay, there's 364 other days. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people might not even realize how much vegan food they might already eat. I know that when I first went either vegan or vegetarian, I also asked my family members to choose at least one of day of the week that they would too. They were very supportive of me, but they at first were having, you know, they didn't want that for themselves, of course. And they all did. And they were like, oh gosh, Brooke, I actually don't even meet, eat me every day. Mm. So it's something where it, I think there might be a knee-jerk reaction. Like, oh, I'm not, it's, it's like, oh, I can't do that. And it's like, well, it's not about what you can't do. It's about thinking about all the other incredible food options that are available to you and making yeah. the choice to explore those other options. It's not about can't. It's about um, being willing to broaden your food horizons, really. That's funny that you phrased it that way because I that's definitely a glass half full approach because I think I look at it the opposite way. Oftentimes, like, you know, when someone wants to, do what they do with vegans and confess things to me. <laughs> like, can you stop? Can we just, can we have some kind of research to back this up? Because I'm tired of it. Anyway, so like when people are confessing to me what the, whatever they want to about how they exploit animals, they might say, oh, I barely even eat any meat anyway, so <laughs> I should just go vegan or something. And of course, in my head, I know like, you know, they eat a lot of animal products and they don't necessarily see it as such. So they, I, I've, I've experienced the opposite mm-hmm. where people like don't realize how many animal products 
they're consuming. But then again, your your way is probably also true. It's probably just a different perspective, or maybe it depends on the person. It probably definitely depends on the person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'll try and be more positive. I get what you're saying. (laughs) All right. What about labeling? I mean, this is certainly a huge issue for the industry. They want us to use things like cultured cashew product instead of vegan cheese. What have you found about the most effective way to label plant-based products? So it's an interesting question because if I just told you literally what we found, the message might be opposite from what I would like to say, which is that there is quite a large body of research now supporting the use of plant-based as a term. It's really become the accepted term. People are beginning, even in the general public, to know what it means. And while their understanding may not be perfect, sometimes they think that there are still animal products in things that say plant-based. That's really not the end of the world if they're buying it. So plant-based is really taken over and is a good term. It's a strong positive term, and it conveys the content of the food. The phonolytics study that we did a couple of years ago at this point found that when people were choosing quickly between two products, the word vegan actually didn't play badly. It, it went pretty well. People tended to choose it over other terms, including plant-based. So that can be a little bit confusing, but it's a really good message about why we need different studies looking at the same topic in different ways. Mm. Because what I take away from that is that we don't need to be as afraid of the word vegan as I think some people have almost become. There's been so much emphasis on plant-based and the negative associations with vegan. It's important to remember that there are contexts where it actually does better, possibly because it's more familiar still. People know what vegan is and what it means, whereas plant-based, if it's a little less familiar, they might have to think about it a little bit more. So overall, I would say the best thing we know about labeling is to use terms like plant-based. We also know that you want to highlight the origins and flavor and all the positive associations of the food products. So Mm -hmm. saying something like cultured cashew cheese is probably good. I think that the word cheese is just fine in there unless it, you know, the FDA says that we can't say that. But get me started. (laughs) uh, Yeah, that's a different conversation. In terms of getting people to buy it and enjoy it, the more words you can throw in there that evoke those sort of indulgent sensations, the better. Barrel-aged cultured cashew cheese with ash rind or something. I I have no idea if that's a thing. I just made it up, but that kind of thing. (laughs) You probably Um, just created like this incredible new market for like... (laughs) Barrel aged cheese, who knows? Um, But yeah, things like that are really helpful for getting across the sensation of eating a product, which is actually the most important thing is the taste. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, I, I, how does that relate to how people identify themselves? I ask because several years ago there was. You know, this is fuzzy for me. You you probably know more than I do about this, so I apologize in advance. But there was a study a few years ago about meat-free and putting meat-free on, like, you know, frozen goods, for example. And I saw a campaign spin out from that that encouraged people to call themselves meat-free instead of, you know, vegan or vegetarian or, or plant-based or what have you. And like, oh, I got, I like winced because from my totally non-scientific background, like I just want to basically do an interpretive dance about this. But (laughs) I I just feel like, okay, yeah, if meat-free works on a frozen item, that doesn't necessarily mean that a person is going to label themselves meat-free. Do you have any thoughts about this? 
That's a little odd for a person. I, I'm inclined to agree. I've heard the debate between plant-based and vegan for, for self-identification, and I think there are pros and cons to using those. I think people have very strong feelings about what vegan means, either applied to themselves or applied to others. And I think that's a personal choice, whether you choose to identify as vegan or plant-based. I don't know of research offhand about using meat-free for self-identification, but I'm inclined to agree with you that that's just kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I'm just saying, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that I don't think you can take research for one thing and apply it to another thing. No. Like it, it's a different set of circumstances. <laughs> yes. Yes. For sure. If there, if there's no research on a specific topic available, I will always encourage you to try and generalize from what exists. Mm-hmm. But taking something as different as a food product and a human is a little bit of a mm-hmm. stretch. I'm thinking more of if there's no research on plant-based meat, but there is research on organic foods, then you can try and apply what you've learned from right. that. Those are a bit more apples to apples as opposed to apples to oranges. And I don't, honestly, I don't even really care what people call themselves. Like, I, I yeah. think, I, I like vegan. It works for me. I think it's a great word to like get behind and mainstream and it's getting out there more and more. But like so many people get so hung up on definitions and the point is that, let's stop eating animals. I mean, to me, that's the point is like the more choices we can make toward that, regardless of what we call ourselves. I recognize the value and importance of labels, but I also recognize the lack of importance. I think maybe there are two side-by-side tracks of truth here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that point. Both the importance and the unimportance at times. Like at some point, just stop discussing it and take some action instead. So if we ever get to the point that cultivated meat or clean meat or cultured meat or whatever we're calling it these days is ready to go to market, are there indications as to whether people will buy it? I think a lot of people will buy it. There's been a lot of studies now getting at interest in trying it. I think what's going to be the bigger challenge is to get them to keep buying it. And we don't know yet. You can't really know that until the thing happens, until it launches. Right now, depending on the study, you see you know, two-thirds of people who want to try it. And that's great. That's fantastic. But we really need to make sure that it's at a point where when they try it, they feel comfortable with it, they like it, they keep buying it. There's so many considerations that take you from trying something once to becoming a repeat consumer. And I know that one thing you're looking at, which I'm really excited about, is consumer attitu- attitudes toward toward chicken and fish in the U.S. And I love chicken so, so much. I mean, that's why we named our henhouse our henhouse, or it's part of the reason. But most people seem to have such disdain for them and, and, and for fish. People don't mm-hmm. even seem to understand that they're, you know, living creatures. Mm-hmm. Can you Can you tell us what you're looking at in doing this research? Basically exactly that. Uh, The harmful beliefs that people have about chickens and fish is precisely where we're starting. So we got people to suggest different beliefs that they think that the general public has, which include things like, you know, chickens are dumb or fish don't feel pain, like crazy things. Mm -hmm. And we just put them to our survey respondents to see how much agreement they had with those different things, uh, how much they believed them, and then their willingness afterward to sign a petition to support welfare improvements for fish or chickens, and also to change their own diet to reduce their consumption. Mm -hmm. And our goal with this is to look at which of those beliefs, whether they're positive or negative, are most associated with those important behaviors that we want to see. 
advocating for change and changing your own diet. And this research isn't out yet, but what we're seeing so far is that beliefs about personality and emotions are really important when you're trying to get people to change their own diets. So what we think is that we're going to be emphasizing advocacy around chickens and fish having personality, playing, being loving carers for each other, those sorts of things that we associate right now with cats and dogs. So we don't know yet for sure how how tractable, how, how manipulatable this is in the general public. That's why we need to follow this up with some experimental research to try and actually change people's beliefs about chickens and fish. But right now mm-hmm. we're looking at which ones they have and how they relate to behavior. Wow, I can't wait for that. And I know that China is also a focus of your research efforts. Obviously, making change in China is so enormously important. Mm -hmm. What are you looking at there? And can you give us a hint with that, too, as to what you're finding? (laughs) I can't give you a hint for this one yet, unfortunately, because we we were on a roll. (laughs) (laughs) We're just starting. I don't have a hint. That's why I can't. (laughs) So we're starting out by talking to advocates themselves in China. Um, So this is people who advocate for farmed animals in a variety of different ways, whether that's vegan advocacy or institutional advocacy. We're going to talk to a range of different advocates and get their impressions just through an interview kind of format of what's working, what the biggest challenges are, and what we kind of should and shouldn't do going forward. Basically, Mm -hmm. lessons learned from the advocates themselves. And then we're going to take those learnings and apply them to the general public in China. So do a follow-up set of interviews with members of the public and just see kind of their own attitudes and opinions around eating meat or veganism and what the barriers are at that level. But we really want to start with the advocates themselves because they're the ones who have been on the ground and doing the work and they see what's working and what's not. That'll give us a much better sense before we go in and talk to the public. All right. Well, I'll keep my eyes open for that. Now, something that has that never occurred to me, but I I understand you're looking into is whether different animal products originating from the same animal actually have a different impact on animals' lives, such as chicken nuggets versus drumsticks or beef burgers versus steaks. So how would that be? And and how will you make use of such research? Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And it should be coming out in the next uh, month or two of when this, this publishes, I hope. So essentially the rationale behind why they have different impact is that some products have more animal product in them and some animals are larger than others. So one chicken slaughtered feeds fewer people who eat meat than one cow does. So, I mean, it almost, it feels wrong almost to put this sort of value on the animal lives in this way, but it's a useful exercise to see what the impact is of eating something like chicken nuggets versus a steak in terms of the number of animals who die for that consumption and the number of days of suffering that go into it. And I think this actually comes back a little bit to the conversation we were having earlier about um, vegetarianism and kind of the dangerous comfort that it gives you that you're doing the right thing that some of the highest things on the list are egg products because there are just so many days of suffering that go into producing eggs for human consumption. Okay. Wow. There's so much going on here. There, I, I mean, I want, I, I imagine you're a small team, but I, I want there to be like a hundred people working at, <laughs> at, or more. I just think it's so cool. Like, and there's such endless research that we need in order to inform the success of 
of our movement. Uh, I, I just have one more question for you. <laughs> I know I've kept you on for a really long time. No, sure. I feel like I have, I feel like, ha ha ha, you can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about research all day. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, you're set, You're my favorite brand of nerd. <laughs> I mean, so uh, anyway, so obviously an important focus for you and for all of our listeners is vegan recidivism. Can you tell us about your work in this area, both past and future? Yeah, so this is one of our biggest studies that still gets a lot of attention in spite of coming out, uh, I think, six years ago at this mm-hmm. point. So we found that the vast majority of people who attempt a vegan or vegetarian diet at some point in their lives will lapse from it, are recidivists, essentially. And, you know, this this came across as really bad news to the community. It sounds terrible that most people give up the diet. I think the important thing to remember with that is that someone who tries veganism is not what most of us think of as a vegan, that a lot of them are attempting it for health reasons. And what we found was that health reasons were associated with the most lapsing. People who are doing it for animal welfare reasons are much more likely to stick with it over time and environmental reasons a little bit more in that direction as well. So What we're doing now is following up that research with a longitudinal study, which means tracking the same people over time. So we're taking people who have just started a new vegan or vegetarian diet, and the reason for including both is partially just numbers, getting enough people to participate. But so we're tracking people who have just started within the last two months and following them for the first six months of their new diet experience. So from that, we can get at how many of those people lapse, and we're asking questions about what kind of barriers they're experiencing, whether they're finding cost to be a factor, having trouble coming up with things to make or find at restaurants, and also the supports that they have, whether they have social support for this or uh, how their culture interacts with this diet. And we're hoping that it's going to give us some really good information about how we can, as advocates, support people in being and staying vegan. And that comes back again to that idea of really needing to help people understand how to be vegan and how to continue to be vegan, rather than just getting them to, you know, check the box that says, yes, I will give this a shot. Giving it a shot is not enough. You have to continue. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Uh, It's definitely been an issue in our in our movement for a long time. And you know, it's even sad for me. We've been on the air now for like we're in our 11th year of of every week going up. And sometimes I think back at our to our guests and I think every now and then someone will occur to me and I'll be like, what's that person doing now? And I'll realize they're no longer vegan. It's not a lot. Like we probably have interviewed, you know, over a thousand people for the show and it's probably a, a, a few. But, but you know, they were working in animal advocacy to the level that we had them on our hen house. And it's just really, it's endlessly sad when that happens. And I think that, like, there is also a beauty in becoming, like, uh, you know, more broader organization, I mean, a more broader movement in that we, we can sort of take down the barriers that would keep people from joining the movement who are like afraid of what it means to be vegan or afraid of what it means to be an animal advocate, like just advocate for animals and stop eating them regardless of 
whether you call yourself vegan or you call yourself an animal activist, if we can somehow make it a less intimidating space and allow, uh, you know, a, a bit more softness when people come up with issues because of their personal lives or what have you, that we can help support them to, to stay in the realm of changing the world for animals, then I think we can really make a lot of positive changes for the world. I don't know if that made sense, but it's like, I just don't want to be such a, you know, rigid sort of like army of, <laughs> of militants, even though I consider myself like as vegan as you can possibly be. Obviously I'm an imperfect human and if if I brought those imperfections to light, then I'm sure people would help support me in like the areas of my life that I feel I'm ethically fuzzy about. Mm -hmm. So why can't we do that with vegans, mm -hmm. with veganism? Absolutely. Everybody's on a different stage of their own journey, right? Like there was a point when we hadn't made that step yet. And I find it helpful to think back and remember that I wasn't there yet at one point either. And that we all need to take the steps that that we need to make and how can we support them and what are the different ways we can support them. And we know we touched on a lot of those those opportunities. And I think another chance that we have as as a mainstream movement is to demonstrate that we do care about other causes as well. When we're talking about animal protection and the oppression of animals, weaving in uh, the fact that eating and consuming animal products does harm to people as well. And acknowledging that, I think, will also broaden up who believes that animal protection is important. Yeah. Final thing, which is I want to know how people can support your efforts and and stay on top of your work. And I do want to also add that I know you're a nonprofit, and it's interesting. I never really thought about this before, but our hen house is also a nonprofit. And it's funny because you know, our hen house is sort of on the other side of the spectrum as you, you're on the, like, you're on one side of the spectrum of creating the research to inform our efforts as, as advocates and as a movement. And then we're on the other side of the spectrum, providing media about what advocates are doing. And yet <laughs> in this world of like nonprofit animal advocacy, it isn't probably either one of those sides of the spectrum that occurs to people for donations and for support, because we sort of expect research is going to just happen. And we sort of expect media is going to just happen. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about how people can support your efforts and the importance of doing so? Yes. And thank you. It, you know, it's true. I, I think that we now more than ever, we can be very thoughtful about where we donate and put our money. And I mean, we as vegans know that, right? We choose not to support the industries that harm or kill animals, right? So same thing on the donation side. What what can we do to empower animal advocates? And that's the incredible thing about Faunalytics work and your work on the media side of things is supporting us ultimately supports numerous advocates and numerous organizations. So by donating to Faunalytics at faunalytics.org, it's not just a donation toward a research project. It's then all of the animal advocates and all of the organizations who use our research and apply it directly to their work to build their capacity and be more effective. So all of our research and all of our services are free. Our original research studies are downloaded for free. Our office hours are free. Our research library 
And that's actually not true of a lot of research, right? You do have to pay sometimes for studies. And so we hope that anyone who has the ability to give or has benefited from our work, even a small gift really goes a long way. And like I said, it will be just the beginning of a ripple that goes on to to help the entire movement. And if donating isn't an option, we also welcome volunteers. Because we're a research organization, we do have particular volunteer needs. But if you align with what we're looking for, we would love to have your support. We don't know what we would do without our volunteers, as I'm sure many organizations don't. And then share our research. You know, say you can't give time or money if you can share the work we're doing. Our animal advocates are megaphones to the entire movement. So if you think, hey, that study's cool, I know other people in animal protection that might benefit from it, please share it, whether that's publicly or one-on-one or sharing our social media, forwarding our newsletter. That really helps and goes a long way too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So faunalytics.org and you're on social media at faunalytics. Well, I've kept you for a really long time, longer than I've kept any guests in like the last several years. Oh, but what an whatever. honor. Um, That's flattering. <laughs> yeah. I just was like, I, um, I, yeah. So thank you. I, I just was super into it. So I appreciate the early morning conversation. And I'm wondering if you'll stay on and chat with me for a few extra mon- minutes for our flock bonus content. Our pleasure. Okay, thank you so much. And thanks so much for joining us today on our hen house. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Hi, everybody. This is Jasmine. And this is Marianne. And we have a very important announcement for you today, which is to please join the flock already. (laughs) Yeah, I guess we've never, we've probably never mentioned that before, right? I don't think we have, no. Mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like now is more important than ever to join it because now is when we really need media that is speaking the truth about animals and That is what our hen house does. So by joining the flock, you are supporting media such as our hen house to keep going. And we literally could not do it without your support. So for $10 a month or $100 a year, you will become part of this super special insider crew, the flock. Yes. And in addition to supporting us, which is really the reason we hope that you will join the flock, we try to make it worth your while. And I think we really do because we've got this terrific flock page which is a private Facebook page only for members of the flock. And the conversations there of late have been outstanding. So good. I know. It's like a private only Facebook group just for the flock. It's thought provoking. It's supportive. It's encouraging. And there's lots of resources there that I didn't know about. And so I'm just always so grateful to our conversations there. And in addition to that, we provide bonus flock only content every single week. It's like an additional little podcast just for you, for the flock. And it's fantastic. Yeah, actually, you know, it was it was a big decision to start doing that because it was a lot of extra work right in the beginning. But now that we've got it going, I'm so glad we did because I really love those little interviews. They, I think they're turning out great. They really are. They are sort of blowing my mind every week, week after week. So join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org, clicking on donate. And for $10 a month or $100 a year, you will become a flock member. And we will also be offering you exclusive access to our undying love and affection. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks if you're in the flock already, and thanks if you're about to be. Thank you. Anxiety's rising! Our first story is by Hannah Thompson Weeman, one of my favorite commentators, as you know. Uh, She writes for MeetingPlace.com, the Animal Ag Watch column, and she's writing about more anti-meat documentaries slated for the small screen. 
Yay, that sounds like good news already. As she points out, unfortunately for the meat community and animal agriculture, and uh, she goes on to say about all this overabundance of content with negative messages on platforms like Netflix and Apple TV and whatever, calling themselves documentaries that are, quote, light on the science and heavy on dramatic claims about animal agriculture's alleged negative impacts. All right, so she's talking about two new films, both of them are from Keegan Kuhn. I mean, my hero, Keegan Kuhn. Of course, he was one of the filmmakers behind Cowspiracy and What the Health. And he is just uh, going for broke. The, one of them is called They're Trying to Kill Us, and two is The End of Medicine. Now, They're Trying to Kill Us, you would probably think this, is, this would be specifically about, about uh, health. And it's from director John Lewis, and he is vegan. But he points out um, in a promotional interview... That, quote, while a lot of documentaries talk about the cancers, the strokes, hypertension, and the lists goes on into, in eating animal protein, a lot of times we don't talk about the social justice impact, the way these workers are treated when they are cutting and killing these animals. This film could not be more timely uh, because of the, the pandemic and, and just a great way in to just rip the lid off of animal agriculture, in my opinion. He also, according to Hannah, Lewis also referenced, quote, the pandemic side of animal agriculture, the COVID-19s, the swine flu, the bird flu. And it's so exciting that he's linking this, that, that they managed to get in, uh, you know, a lot about pandemics. And I can't wait. I can't wait. Later this year, according to Hannah. All right, the second one, The End of Medicine, focuses on animal agriculture and public health. So not so much the specific health messages that we've seen perhaps in What the Health, but more the public health issues. You'll be happy to hear that Joaquin Phoenix is the executive producer. Uh, Rooney Mara is also the co-producer. So it's going to be pretty good, you got to admit. And as Hannah says, we can anticipate it will be negative and claim that animal agriculture is to blame for the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure it will be honest. I mean, like everybody knows that the COVID-19 pandemic did not arise from pig farming in the U.S. We know it arose from wild animal. Well, I mean, we're pretty sure it arose from wild animal markets in, in China. Like, this is not a secret or, or something that really can be disguised <laughs> if we wanted to. It still arises from animals. That's the point. Anyway, there's not as much about uh, the end of medicine, but uh, according to uh, Rooney Mara, we hope that the end of medicine is an eye-opening call to action and ignites a spark of willingness to change our habits. The science is irrefutable. Modern animal agriculture will continue to make us sick if we don't radically change our patterns of consumption, unquote. And it, it doesn't say a lot more of what it was about, but, you know, it does seem like there will be something about pandemics. And even though, as we know, COVID-19 is specifically related to uh, wild animal markets in China, a form of animal agriculture, well, I guess not animal agriculture, animal consumption, so many other diseases, huge, huge threats to our health are related directly to animal agriculture in the United States. So I hope, unlike um, Hannah, that um, these films will probably gain a lot of notoriety given their controversial subject matter, unquote. Um, and she wants the meat community to be prepared to debunk their claims. Well, you know, good luck with that. All right. This was annoying. I mean, the story I saw on Plant-Based News... And they are never annoying. They do a great job. But they're 
pointing out a story in the Times. This is the Times in the UK, which is just called the Times, the Times, which I unfortunately can't access because I'm just not willing to pay for it. I'm sorry, guys. But fortunately, I have plant-based news keeping an eye on them. And uh, according to them, they ran this story which described vegans as modern-day inheritors of Margaret Thatcher. I bet you are scratching your head and wondering, as a vegan, have inherited the mantle of, um, you know, arch-conservative Margaret Thatcher. And apparently they made this comparison in an article where plant-based advocates called on the UK government um, to stop serving dairy milk. And apparently Margaret Thatcher at some point did that as well because she didn't want kids getting free school milk. She wanted to do it with... uh, for money. She just didn't want to waste the money on giving children food. <laughs> of course, vegans are trying to replace dairy milk with plant-based options. It's a little different, guys. We're not Margaret Thatcher. She did have a lovely complexion. I'm having to look into picture. But other than that, she was horrifying, and I don't like being uh, being compared to her. And, you know, come on. Come on. Talk about, like, Really unfair reporting. Uh, apparently, this is a you know a, a great campaign in the UK. Uh, around seven million dollars of taxpayers' money is spent providing all school children in the UK from five, five and under, um, access to free cow's milk. And yeah, let's let's get rid of that and replace it with with fruits, vegetables, plant-based milk, whatever whatever you like, as long as it's not from an animal. That's my opinion. If they care, which they don't. Okay, let's see. What's next? I have two reports commenting on the recent Farmed Animal Conference eSummit. I, I think I'll talk about, you know, Hannah Thompson Weeman, even though I have already had uh, a column from her that I talked about. But, but she's always entertaining. She wrote this on Drovers, Things Animal Rights Activists Say, 2020 edition. And so they do every year report on... on uh, on all of our conferences. They send people there, which is, you know, it's good to get the money, though I'm sure most of these conferences sell out, so not that good to get the money. We'd get it anyway. Uh, But, you know, they're keeping an eye on us, and apparently now that things have gone virtual for most conferences, or, you know, if they weren't canceled altogether, they're still keeping an eye on us. And I just love that, you know? She didn't have a lot to say. It was a little confusing, uh, because she didn't really bother to comment a lot. She kind of seemed to think that the statements that people made spoke for themselves. So she said, without further ado, I present the latest round of statements illustrating just what we all are up against and why it is critical to take activism seriously. Kind of an easy way to write an article, I must say. All right, so I figured you'd be interested in what... Uh, in in what they are all up against, i.e. us. So I'm going to read these comments that she thought were notable. First, from Elmira Tanner from DXE, we're going to have to get on every platform that's out there, spread the word, bring more people to our movement. We are going to have to have trivia challenges, get hashtags trending on Twitter, and we are going to build coalitions with other social justice groups, and we are going to attend virtual meetings to get inspired. Yeah, I'm in. Uh, Jane Velez Mitchell, one of our favorites. Um, Let's stop raping these animals into existence. None of these animals on these factory farms are making love. Well said, Jane. All right, here from Kim Sterla from Animal Place, which is, of course, is the organization that organized the conference. So many children are devastated by the whole 4-H and FFA program. 
that it is clearly meant to desensitize them to farmed animals. I hope we are seeing the nail in the coffin for these institutions. Yeah, me too, Kim. I am with you. These uh, these programs are child abuse. That's what I think. All right. Um, from Mark Beckoff. I didn't understand this column, this comment from Mark Beckoff. Let me know if it, he, he, of course, is a, you know, a, a great commentator on animal behavior. He's at the University of Colorado. He's also been on the podcast. I used to believe I don't anymore that farmed animal welfare acts protect animals, but they don't. They just protect the money-making corporations and the really nasty people that work in that industry. The thing that I don't understand is like, what farmed animal welfare acts? We don't have any farmed animal welfare acts protecting farm animals, so I'm not sure. Miyoko Shinner. Oh, we love Miyoko Shinner. A movement like ours is the beginning of the end of animal agriculture. All right. Concise, strong, well said. All right, John Oberg, who is a vegan social media influencer. When animal liberation has finally been achieved, we are going to look back, and one of the unsung heroes of what created this new kind, compassionate world is going to be the share button on Facebook. Well, he's probably right, which means I should really need to up my social media game. All right, finally, from Anita Kronj, of course, the wonderful, wonderful Anita Kronj of the SAVE movement. You're not going to change society necessarily by holding an event once a year. Yeah, you're not. Get it. We need to get out there. We need to do everything we can. And I think we are. I think they're really nervous. All right, finally, I'm just going to read you an excerpt from an interview with President Trump. And I'm not sure I understood what was going on here. But I don't know. It, it was just so odd that uh, <laughs> I thought, let's see if you can figure out what's going on here. This has to do with a lot of things other than animal agriculture, but we do get there. So be patient with me. All right. He was asked whether he had confidence that we were going to see double digit growth in, in the second half of 2020. This is his answer. So I think it depends on who wins. I think if he wins, you're going to end up with a disaster, to be honest. I see his plans. The new Green Deal is something that the likes of which nobody can even comprehend. It's like drawn by children. It's drawn by children. It's so ridiculous, okay? You go over point over point, and they're actually serious about it. I used to think they were playing games. It was politics. I don't even think it's good politics. It's so ridiculous. But they're talking about no fossil fuels, which means basically no energy. You'd have to close down half of the businesses of the country. You have to rebuild cities because too much light gets through the window. So let's make the windows nice and small. Let's rip down the Empire State Building and replace it with no windows. I mean, the whole thing is so preposterous. It's so crazy. And I guess you're talking about $100 trillion, right, to do it. Assuming you did it, which will never happen, by the way. But I will tell you, it's no airplanes. Let's not get more than one car. I'm sure the car business would love that. Let's everyone get a car and live by it. The cows. See, I told you I would get to it. The cows. I don't know if they actually put the cows in. They're getting hit very hard by the animal rights groups, but they don't want to have cows. They don't want to have any form of animals. These people are crazy, okay? And this is, a, this is what we're getting. And it's amazing the way Sleepy Joe buys into it. He buys into it like, oh, great. Okay, I'm just going to let that sit there because I'm not, I'm not sure I understood what he was saying about cows. But I do like the idea that anybody is getting hit very hard by the animal rights group. So I thought you'd appreciate that as well. 
And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer. Be safe out there. Social distance. Stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.